Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hello everyone, I'm Matthew Taylor, I'm the RSA's Chief Executive, and it really is my great pleasure to welcome you all to today's special uh, event. I'm always delighted that people watch our events, come to our events, but it's a bit special for me, this one, for reasons I'm about to explain. Uh, If you're a fellow of the RSA or a fan of our public events programme, you'll know that each year I take to the Great Room stage to deliver the Chief Executive's annual lecture. But given the unique circumstances we all find ourselves in this year, we decided to do things a little differently. So I've published my 2020 lecture, my 14th annual lecture, which is called The Reflexive Age as an online long read, or if you're a multitasker, you can listen to a podcast version uh, on our podcast, Bridges to the Future. Um, I worked out it's just about the right length for a a good session of ironing or about a six or seven kilometer run or the tube journey between Balham and Leicester Square. Um, You can find links to the essay and the podcast in the descriptor uh, below. But uh, I wanted also to subject my ideas to some critical uh, scrutiny and rather intimidatingly for me, but um, I'm very flattered, two brilliant public thinkers have agreed to join me today to share their thoughts and reflections in response. So joining me are the award-winning columnist and author Nezreen Malik, who is in Egypt. That's uh, uh, beyond the call of duty to be uh, participating from the other side of the world, but a long way away. So thank you, Nezreen, for joining us. And Tim Bale, Professor of Politics at Queen Mary University of London, Deputy Director of the Think Tank, the UK and Changing Europe, I think is somewhere near the south uh, coast. Uh, I am actually back in the RSA for one for the first time, second time in four months. Um, so, Nezreen, Tim, uh, hello and welcome. Thanks so much for being with me uh, today. So, before I give you the chance to kind of critique my ideas, I'll move on to a wider conversation about the kind of broad topics that I was talking about in my lecture. I'm going to briefly, and I promise briefly, summarise my Uh, argument for anyone watching who hasn't had a chance to read it yet uh, or to listen to it yet. And I thought the way I try and do that is to just turn it into 10 propositions, which I'll do little more than read through. So first proposition is that crisis, uh, and we of course are still living through a crisis and in many parts of the world it's getting worse, but crisis increases the possibility of change. We know this historically. Um, We are moving away from the past eras and we may be moving into a new era. We're moving away from what's left of neoliberalism and populism may have peaked, particularly, I guess, if Trump loses in November. So out of the rubble of neoliberalism, which of course still exists, populism, which still exists, but yet have kind of maybe lost their ascendancy, is there a new age we're moving into? And Might there be an organizing principle for that new age? That was the question that I wanted to explore. The second proposition is something that I've spoken about a lot. It was in my annual lecture, I think, five years ago, which is that a useful way of thinking about human beings is that we have four core sets of motivations. And by the way, I'm not just plucking these ideas from thin air. There's quite a lot of anthropology and psychology and other things which reinforce this idea. So we have four core sets of motivations, which are also worldviews, and they also are reflected in particular methods of change. And those four views, three of them are kind of active and one of them's kind of passive. So authority, we do what we're told. 
values and belonging. We do what we do because of the beliefs that we hold, the group that we belong to, the kind of person we think we ought to be given that group belonging. And thirdly, we do things because of the individual aspirations that we have for ourselves, our own unique personal personality and, and choices. And then there's a fourth motivation, which we don't talk about very much in our kind of society, which is actually very important, and that's fatalism, because a lot of the time we don't think change is possible, and we're aware of uh, um, the pathos of human existence. Uh, we are the only species probably culturally aware of our mortality. Uh, so that's how we might think about what motivates human beings. The third proposition is that policies, institutions, and nations seem to be more successful in terms of improving the quality of life of, of the people that they are directed to or the people they contain when they find a way of articulating and balancing these human motivations. That is to say, in systems which authority, belonging, individual aspiration, all seem to kind of be in existence and seem to be reasonably balanced together, then actually we have relatively low levels of fatalism and we believe in progress and we're quite good at solving problems. And that's true of organizations, it's true of policies, it's true of societies. Happy to elaborate on that further in the conversation, but there is quite a lot of evidence to support that. Fourth suggestion, fourth proposition, is that um, that sounds like that's a recipe for success, but actually it turns out to be extremely hard. And that's because these motivations, authority, belonging, individual aspiration, and kind of fatalism push against each other. They are in many ways critiques of each other because each of them has got a kind of pathological side as well as a positive side. You know, so individual aspiration drives innovation and creativity, but it can also be uh, atomizing and selfish and belonging brings out the best of us, but can actually make us more sectarian and more insular, more defensive. Authority can be really powerful and driving change, but often becomes overbearing and sometimes uh, authoritarian. So they have, each have good and bad sides. And also, even when you get them into a balance, the world keeps changing and it upsets that balance because it makes one or other motivation stronger or weaker. Fifth proposition, the genius of liberal democracy is its potential to dynamically balance our motivations, methods, and worldviews. So there's something about liberal democracy which gives it the capacity to be able to align our authority drive, our belonging drive, and our individual aspiration drive. And it can do that, and when it does it, it does lead to progress. However, uh, historically, liberal democracy has more often been unbalanced than balanced, and also liberal democracy has had a huge blind spot, which is that it may have been good for the people who were in liberal democracies, but it often did that at the expense of people outside the liberal democratic circle who were being... Uh, exploited in often uh, terrible uh, ways. The sixth proposition is that if we're going to overcome social pessimism, political polarization, which we suffer from at the moment, and it's social pessimism that particularly worries me, we need to try to achieve some kind of new balance of these forces. I believe we, we had some kind of balance in the post-war era, which is why those decades look quite good in retrospect, but we need a new balance of those forces because at the moment society is extremely unbalanced a uh, seventh proposition, which is at the heart of the speech, really, is that if we're going to do that, if we're going to achieve a new balance, a kind of post-war settlement, a post-COVID settlement of these forces, which is partly a balance of state, market, and civil society, which represent those kind of motivations, the, the embodiment of those motivations, 
If we're going to do that, we should combine the philosophical and political strengths of liberal democracy with insights into human nature. We need to understand who we are and seek more explicitly to build policies and institutions designed to bring out the best in us and to enable us to solve our problems together. And that's what I call a reflexive age, that capacity to think more deeply about who we are and to, to create social institutions and policies and, and, and systems which bring out the best of us and mitigate our many kind of flaws and challenges and, and the inevitable breakdowns that occur. Final three points. Point eight, change doesn't come from nowhere. And so my notion of reflexivity, this notion of being able to look inside ourselves with more insight and to use that as a tool to create a new balance. Firstly, I think we are seeing a more sophisticated understanding of the foundations of individual well-being and fulfillment. I think we've put the myth of homo economicus behind us and we're beginning in all sorts of ways to have a deeper conversation about what is it that makes for a successful life. And secondly, when it comes to authority, I'm seeing lots more evidence of more thoughtful, more emotionally intelligent forms of leadership around the place, far from universal, still lots of crap macho management out there and, and populist political leadership. But I'm seeing many signs, including amongst some politicians who are showing a different, much more intelligent form of leadership, a form of leadership that sees power not as something that you seize and use, but as something which you create and share. Ninth point, one but last point. Even though I see progress in terms of kind of reflexive individualism and a reflexive authority, I'm much more worried about group-based polarization. It feels to me as though we have a desperate desire for belonging and we're very much driven by very strong principles at the moment, but to an extent we've lost sight of the kind of flip side of that shared values and belonging. And without the use of liberal principles such as universalism and rationality, I worry that our very strong appetite for belonging and for shared values leads to extremism and sectarianism. And so finally, um, what I'm saying uh, in essence is that we need to have a conversation about the characteristics of institutions and societies. So this is a point about systems really. We need to have a conversation about the characteristics of institutions and societies that generate progressive change. And to use a phrase to complete this, summary, which isn't in my speech, I think we need to think about the social architecture which best enables human beings to thrive and to solve problems. So I fear I've gone slightly over my seven or eight minutes, but I've tried to compress it as much as I possibly can. So, Tim, I'll go to you first. Uh, I, what, what do you make of this argument? Does it have any value at all, do you think? <laughs> well, uh, you'll be glad to know that I think it does. Um, actually, a lot of what you said resonated uh, very strongly with me, not actually simply for the, the substance, but also because it recalls actually a lot of the, the stuff that I've been reading for a, a very long time. And as you said, uh, there was a little bit of anthropology in there. And certainly if anyone has ever read any Mary Douglas, uh, you know, it will resonate with them. There's also even a bit of Plato in there, uh, which uh, you know was something I liked as well. This idea that he puts forward of our, our kind of rationality, our intellect, having to be the charioteer that uh, controls our kind of spirit on the one hand and our, our appetite on, on the other. And I, I think you know this this striving for balance that you talk about, I think, is incredibly important. I think you sum up uh, the plight of liberal democracy very, very well. Um, the fact that, you know, 
many of us live in countries where leaders seem unable to, you know, strike that balance. Uh, we have perhaps moved the pendulum too far in recent years towards a kind of shallow individualism. That seems to make tra- sense. But we've somehow managed to combine that as well with a kind of toxic tribalism, uh, on the other hand. Um, and I also, I think, like the way that you don't simply put the blame, as it were, on, on our leaders. You, you talk a lot about you know, us uh, as a society needing to do something ourselves, um, and, and to look inwards and, and think about what we really want, um, rather than making you know quite unreasonable demands on the, on the one hand of the political system, uh, and also sort of falling into a kind of cynicism or pessimism, uh, which doesn't really get us anywhere, and indeed the fatalism uh, that you you talk about. Um, I mean, I think some people will see some of what you said as kind of pie-in-the-sky stuff. And I, I don't actually think it is. I think a lot of people, particularly perhaps during this lockdown period, um, you know, are beginning to think about whether they want to go back to, to what they had before, whether it was really working for them or not. I think a lot of us are, uh, are undergoing, if you like, a process of self-examination as well as examining the the society we're we're living in and wondering uh, how we can uh, improve it. So, uh, I mean, I think we'll be greeted with a degree of scepticism. It always is, right? But uh, but I think a lot of people will actually um, associate with the kinds of things that you're you're talking about. I mean, that's not to say uh, I haven't got any caveats and we can talk about some of the caveats. But one of the things, and perhaps that's where I'll kind of end my little bit on, that I, I thought was particularly interesting was, was the way that you, you talk about um, crisis in some ways producing change, only if to some extent that change was already incipient, already there in, in the years before. Uh, and, and, I, and in some ways, the crisis canalizes a feeling that was already around. Uh, and I think if you look, for example, as many people have made you know, the, the comparison at, at 1945, I think that's a really, really interesting comparison there. It's one I think you, you touch on. And, and it's interesting because if we look back at the 1930s, actually the 1930s, for a lot of people, in the UK anyway, were, were quite a good decade. We, we, you know, we tend to think of it um, as the kind of hungry 30s, as the devil's decade, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, if you look around the part of the country that I live in, the southeast, there was a housing boom. You know, some people were doing very, very well out of it. And it was only actually until um, Labour politicians, but not just politicians, journalists, writers, etc., made the case in the 1940s, the early 40s, that actually something had gone wrong in the, in the 30s, uh, that people who, even, even though they weren't the people for whom things had gone very badly wrong, began to look back and think, they're right, you know, we can't go back to this, something has to happen. Uh, and I thought that sort of delayed effect that you talk about is, is very, very important, and that's possibly something we can discuss a little bit more. Thanks, Tim. Um, Nesri, I'm interested what in, 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 in what you make of it, and I, but I want to come off the back of Tim's point, because I think... there's an obvious parallel there, which is that the Black Lives Matter movement has really shone a light on some of the failings of liberal democracy historically and currently. And I think it kind of creates the question of whether or not, you know, liberal democracy can be saved, given how often it has failed to live up to its stated 
values. I'm trying in this speech to see whether it is possible to save liberal democracy from its many critics. Is that a forlorn task, do you think? I'm glad you mentioned in your sum up, actually, that, that liberal democracy is predicated or seems to have been predicated on a large class of losers. And I think it's something we don't talk about very often. I was very grateful that, that you mentioned it. Um, and one of the, the things I really appreciated about, about your, your speech and the summation of it is that in this moment, and I've been preoccupied with this a lot in my column, this moment of sort of post-coronavirus, post-Black Lives Matter, when people are talking about what needs to change and what must change, there isn't really a roadmap. No one really knows what it is that they want to change. And I think that even in trying to figure these things out, it's extremely helpful to just plot the route, like what went wrong in the past and what potentially can be the way forward. And a couple of things are very important in that. Number one is to recognize that whatever, whatever forlorn age that we're, that we're um, nostalgic for always, um, and in particular, liberal democracy always thrived off the back of a huge class of losers that fueled it. And that became very clear in the coronavirus pandemic and um, in Black Lives Matter, which I think actually piggybacked. Um, Black Lives Matter, I think, piggybacked onto the coronavirus pandemic deaths that mapped out along racial and ethnic lines. Um, the second thing is his recognition that in the failure, when, when liberal democracy fails, identity becomes extremely important. Um, and I think that this is a point that people have been kind of teasing out over the past um, couple of years with the rise of identity politics, but I, I fear it might be, and we'll come to this later hopefully, I fear it might be a little bit ahistorical. Um, and I, what I'm interested in is in your views um, on whether you think this is a very specific phenomenon to what is happening today and is related to the failure of capitalism, uh, neoliberalism, etc. Or do you think this is something that happens when societies break down full stop, when whatever mode that they're using at the time, whether it's monarchy, whether it's benign monarchy, whether it's uh, you mentioned Tahrir Square and the Arab Spring. Um, once identity becomes very important, is that because the things that managed to contain identity had begun to degrade? Um, and what I find sitting in Cairo and, and, and um, um, uh, observing the Black Lives Matter movement is one thing that people miss in these moments that look like they are the culmination of things getting worse is that actually they are the combination of things getting slightly better. What happened in, uh, in 2011 in Tahrir Square was that the revolution came off the back of a huge period of liberalization where press freedoms were increased, where detentions decreased, uh, where censorship was, uh, was um, uh, lifted. And so crises don't necessarily look like what we think they are because we only see their combinations. But actually, when they do come about, it's because there have been slight developments that have allowed people to organize and to spread their message. I definitely found that um, with Black Lives Matter. What we missed, like we focused on the coronavirus pandemic, we focused on police brutality, but what we missed was the fact that there is a huge sway of people of color uh, across the world that has been empowered over the past 20, 30 years by social media, by rising um, uh, income, et cetera, to take on those uh, very revolutionary roles. So I'm, in, I'm interested in the sort of how, how bad things get vis-a-vis -vis how good they get um, and how much that contributes, that kind of push and pull, how much that contributes to this moment of change. I mean, that's so brilliant. I mean, it, 
there's so much there that I want to respond to and then bring Tim back in on because um, so I, I guess my view of this uh, and I'm not historian and sometimes I really wish I, wish I was a proper historian but I guess my view of this is 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 what you can think of liberal democracy as being uh, a kind of a, a vehicle a car let's say and what happens with the enlightenment in the industrial revolution is that this car suddenly gets a super new fuel and that new fuel is individualism basically uh persona you know in the form of markets but also in the form of the kind of uh, of liberalism the idea uh, of individual freedom however like a car or certainly like the cars i used to own when i was young every car would have one particular kind of flaw it, it, it would well, they'd all be different to different cars. Some would have a problem with cold mornings. Others would, would have a problem with you know, overheating or whatever it might be. And the flaw that liberal democracy contains is that individualism is by far the most dynamic and powerful of the forces within it. And if, if liberal democracy is not managed effectively, individualism becomes too dominant, societies become too polarised, and then you get a kind of growth then of various forms of solidarity, some of which we would see as progressive, but others which are much more problematic. And they are a kind of reaction to what happens to societies when they get dominated by individualism. And I think that part of that is due, is due to the fact that the birth of the modern era in the Enlightenment is an era where people fail to understand precisely your point, which is they fail to have a view of solidarity, which is genuinely universal. They talk about universalism, but it's not universal, of course. It's not universal, you know, in the West in relation to women and to working class people. And of course, it rests upon slavery, colonialism, and racism as well. So in a way, it's got these kind of flaws built into it, and it requires liberal democracy to be incredibly carefully managed or else it will succumb to these flaws, the fact that individualism becomes overwhelming and leads to kind of polarization and inequality, the Gilded Age, you know, we've seen this before. It is, a, as you say, Nazarene, it's, it's a pattern that recurs. And also that the kind of notions of universal and solidarity, and solidarity within liberal democracy have, have never really been universal and have never really done the work that is required to be truly universal. And that's why Black Lives Matter is so incredibly important in driving home that message, which we kind of intellectually recognize. But I, I think even me as a 59-year-old advocate of liberal democracy, in the last few weeks, I've had my mind focused as it should have been much earlier on, on, the, on the, the degree of this. So yeah, I completely agree with you. We need to understand these kinds of cycles. And my view is that, you know, I'm a political moderate. You know, I am perfectly happy with the politics of progressive liberal democracy, a kind of Blairite politics. But the problem, I think, with the Blair-Clinton kind of project was it fundamentally underestimated how hard it is for liberal democracy to keep the balance. And it allowed it, allowed it to become unbalanced, and it failed to truly reflect on the work that's involved in making universalism real. So that's my kind of interpretation. Uh, Tim, back, back to you. 
I mean, just to pick up on something you said there, you, you, and you, you talk about it actually in the, in the speech as well, this idea that somehow, you know, things have to be managed. But of course, that then begs the question of who does the managing? Uh, and I guess one of the problems, and, and perhaps, you know, some of what Nezreen is talking about actually is, is relevant to this as well, um, is that, you know, that, that question is really, really vital. Is there some kind of, you know, philosopher king who can do this? And I presume you don't think that's the case. You actually think that we have to self-manage this. this is why there has to be quite a lot of self-examination uh, as well. I'm not sure I'm quite as pessimistic as you are in the sense of thinking that um, liberal democracy necessarily always tends as a sort of default towards too much individualism. I, I tend to think that the process is slightly more thermostatic than that, and that we, you know, we 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 have cycles, as you called them, whereby individualism seems to dominate, and then cycles where that is to some extent corrected by a degree of collectivism, and maybe that then overcorrects, and we go back to to a kind of individualism as well. But obviously, I I, I take the point that both of you are making about the the, the uninclusiveness in. Uh, pastimes of of liberal democracy, uh, and and you know, I think Black Lives Matter uh, clearly has made a huge difference to 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 that. But also that goes back to I think the you know the the intellectual bankruptcy and the exposure, if you like, of notions of racial superiority that's been going on now for uh, decades. And you know, in some senses, we've we've finally caught up socially. Uh, with what's happened intellectually on 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 that front, uh, so I, I mean I I see quite a lot of cause for hope here because I I guess I believe we are at one of those kind of thermostatic moments now, and some people would call it a, a, a pendulum where actually you know many people realise that we've overshot on the individualism and we need more collective solutions. And that actually the collective solutions can now be rather more universal uh, than, than perhaps they, they used to be. But I, w one thing I want to pick up in, in addition is, is something that actually is implicit and indeed in some ways explicit in what Nezrin said, which is that, you know, this takes agency, right? I mean, you know, a crisis is not a vacuum into which things naturally um, you know, flow into to fill. Uh, we we need people. We need ideas like yours. Uh, we need movements to actually make stuff happen because it, it doesn't happen of its its own accord. And to to go back to the kind of 1940s point that I was making there, none of that would have happened. That 45 moment would not have happened without you know the the kind of cultural work that people were doing, journalists, writers, uh, you know, filmmakers, whatever. Um, to, to make 45 possible. It, it isn't just a political thing. It has to be a cultural thing as well. And that's where we come on to, you know, Gramsci and hegemony and, and all that kind of stuff. So, Nesvin, to pick up on, 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 on one of Tim's points, I mean, it, it, you're much closer to the political zeitgeist, I think, than, than I am. And yet my reflection on politics is that the politics of protest uh, the politics of idealism is so much more powerful than the politics of solutions, the politics of building coalitions. And um, in the RSA's account of, of the relationship between crisis and change, we, we argue that, that 
the, the reasons that crisis can lead to benign changes. Firstly, that the desire and capacity for change exists before the crisis. Secondly, in the crisis, the demand grows. We see the future prefigured in some of the ways in which people respond to it. But then thirdly and critically, that coming out of the crisis, we have the kind of political coalitions and practical policy ideas to take advantage of people's openness to, to, to change. But that does require leadership in the end, I, I, I think. You know, it requires thoughtful, reflexive, intelligent, humble leadership, but it still requires leadership. What, what's your view, Nazarene, of, 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 of the possibility of any leader being able to forge a kind of progressive sense of common purpose uh, right now and to also win consent for the kinds of practical actions wh which are required. I mean, some leaders, one thinks of uh, Jacinda Ardern, seem to have this kind of capacity, but it's, it's, it's unusual and maybe she'll be unpopular in six months too. It's unusual and also it's easier if you are in a smaller country with the more, uh, with kind of very clear uh, fractures. And I think if you're in the UK or in the, in the US or other countries uh, in Western Europe where there are waves and waves of immigration, where there are indigenous populations as well, um, then things become more difficult. This is, a, this is an extremely crucial question because the reason why it's so difficult for leaders now to forge that kind of progressive universalism uh, coalition is that the leaders before didn't put in the work. And what, what, in the US, you will find that one of the main complaints, one of the reasons why we have to deal with this pejorativization of identity politics is because the Democratic Party fastened on identity as a very useful way to get more voters in the 60s and 70s, um, but, and kind of made loads of overtures to the African-American community, uh, the immigrant community, the Latino community, but didn't follow that up with any real structural culture changing work. It was just about getting the vote, um, giving some very clear, discreet financial um, and urbanization uh, uh, sort of um, uh, what I'm looking for, motivations for that. Um, but there was never any sort of real, I would say radical interpretation of what it means to be a citizen of a minority uh, background in a country like the United States. And over the 20, 30 years the Democratic, Democratic Party did that, the legacy of that was that when Hillary Clinton came to run for, for president, she just went through the motions and assumed that people would come to her, and it was the lowest African American voter turnout in history. It would have been a game changer of the Democratic Party if they had done the work. And so the, the difficulties that leaderships face now is that they need to do the work today and make up for all the work that wasn't done over the past 20, 30 years, basically since the civil rights era. Um, and the, the, the issue with, with that is that you have generations that have already calcified in their views of the world. And so how are you going to retroactively, how are you going to go back in history and say, we should have invested more in education. We should have invested more in positive discrimination. We should have invested more in uh, our understanding of foreign policy as a thing that white supremacy um, uh, emphasizes in countries outside of, of Anglo-American uh, politics. And th that kind of work was done on the left. It was done in the academy, it was done in the media, but it was never taken on board seriously because it's hard and because the dividends are not actually that great if people are voting for you anyway. And so 
the difficulty in, the, in, in answering this question is it depends on a genuine evangelical leader, right? It depends on someone who genuinely thinks that this is something that needs to be an, an investment that needs to be made for the future for which he or she will not reap any rewards in the current day. And if anything, it might harm them. I mean, Jacinda Ardern is popular, but she comes in for a huge amount of flack. Um, and I think, you know, one of, the, one of the problems with how we institute change, I believe Tim uh, sort of touched on this earlier, is our cycles are extremely short. Right? Our election cycles are extremely short. And the horizons for the work that needs to be put in for change are extremely long. And so I would understand if a leader, not even particularly being cynical uh, or, or just trying to find a way for themselves to be reelected, to kind of sit down and do a cost-benefit analysis, right? And say, well, for another five years, I could do X, Y, and Z. Um, but I do understand that the entire survival of our body politic depends on us doing this really um, intensive work to bring people along with us vis-a-vis -vis identity and immigration and foreign policy. And I'm just not sure those dividends are high enough uh, to be worth it. So that's my kind of pessimistic, uh, I would say cynical, but I think it's realistic analysis of why that leader doesn't exist. I don't think Jacinda Ardern would be the leader she, would, she is today if she were um, head of state, head of government in the US or the UK or even Germany. And do you think, Nazreen, I'll stay with you, those are very big points. And, and as you say, in a way, they sort of drive to a slightly pessimistic perspective. Am I being, am I completely failing to grasp the scale of that when I say that there are things that we could do with democracy that might make it easier? So two things. One is just devolving more power, because it seems to me that some of these issues which feel incredibly intractable at a kind of national level are easier to deal with at a local level, that, that, that there is a kind of story of agency at the locality, of people getting on, of people trying to make things work at the locality. And you can see places that you know, seem to have really done amazing things in, in taking very difficult circumstances. I'm thinking of Luton, for example, as a place that seemed, you know, an incredibly divided and difficult place, but now in a much more positive place and a strong sense of agency and, and shared identity. So devolving power because nation states are so problematic, partly because of the historical reasons that you described. Also, I'm a great fan of deliberative democracy, which is, you know, bringing citizens into the room and sharing the dilemmas with them. And, and actually, one of the most powerful things about that is that Citizens nearly always come out of that process saying, God, this is tough, isn't it? This is difficult. But, you know, th this is probably the best way to go forward. This goes back, I guess, to my core thesis. And so I'm going to come to you and then to Tim to, to, to finish. I do believe that liberal democracy can be repaired. And I do think it is worth trying to repair it. But I think we need to use a different set of tools. And so maybe to, to conclude our conversation, Cesar, I'm going to ask you that, that question. Is liberal democracy savable? And if it is, what is it that you think is the critical, will be the critical determinant of whether we can save this project and whether this project can once again have the ability to solve our problems, but this time in a truly inclusive way? Uh, see, the, the tricky bit is the truly inclusive way uh, at the end. And the question, I, I come back to the question, saving liberal democracy has a few meanings. Do we want to save liberal democracy for the classes and the groups that have benefited from liberal democracy over the past few years? 
Or do we want to save liberal democracy in the sense that we want it to work for everyone? In that sense, we're not saving it. We're recreating it because it never worked for everyone. Um, and so I think the question itself needs to be slightly reframed um, in, in the context of for, for liberal democracy to, to provide prosperity, to provide individual freedom, to provide a sense of autonomy, um, to recede the state from the workings of the private individual, that involves a lot of work that capitalism has interfered with, basically. Um, because what capitalism does is it creates an imbalance, a structural imbalance, that there are winners and losers. For there to be winners, there must be losers. And I think liberal democracy gentrifies and kind of smooth the, smooths the edges, this kind of slightly, not slightly, but very brutal capitalist order. So to ask that question, I think liberal democracy in the form that we're slightly misty-eyed about, that we think worked at some point, or looked like it might start to work at some point, doesn't exist, and I don't think it's desirable, even if it did exist, because it is, as I said in the beginning, predicated on a system of winners and losers. Can it be reformed? Can it be modified? Can it, can it be expanded to include people not of certain classes, not of boss class, not uh, people who have not reaped the benefits of prosperity in such a way that only they have the tools. This is the problem. The reason why devolution doesn't happen very often is that very few people have the tools because they have been excluded from the business of acquiring those tools for so long. Um, and so I would say in answering your slightly bastardized question, which is can we reform liberal democracy? I would say yes. But, it in, but that would involve a huge amount of investment and a huge amount of um, uh, relinquishing a lot of the spoils of a capitalist liberal democracy. And that involves lots of voluntary work, lots of soul searching, uh, and again, lots of work that pays no dividends to politicians on an, on an electoral level um, or, an, or an even internal party politics level. So I think it is possible. I'm just struggling to find the reason why anyone would want to do it. <laughs> well, uh, thank you for that. Um, Tim, we'll, we'll, we'll end with you before I make some kind of closing comments. Um, you know, we've, uh, I didn't quote Francis Fukuyama in my speech because it's become the biggest cliche of books and speeches, but, but nevertheless, I am going to do it now. You know, we've come a long way since the triumphalism of 1989, and liberal democracy is arguably more friendless than it has ever been, Nazreen says, if we are willing to face sufficiently its flaws, its failings, its systematic problems, and fundamentally reform it, then yes, it may be safe, but it, who's going to do the work? What's your view? Well, I guess I'm rather less ambitious, but then it's easy for me to be less ambitious, because in some ways, you know, I, I'm clearly one of the people who you know, over the decades has, has benefited. I'm not one of the people who have necessarily been excluded. I mean, personally, I, I can't really see liberal democracy ever doing much more than mitigating uh, some of the, the problems with capitalism. I, 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 I don't see it being able to do very much more than that, although I think that's a very important role uh, that it, it, it can play there. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think your point about tools is interesting. It, it, in your essay, you, you don't go into institutions, really. You deliberately shy away from doing that. You talk about all sorts of other interesting things. And one of the things you talk about, actually, is what you call, I think, or uh, coming off the back of something someone else wrote, cathedral thinking. 
that goes to Nezreen's point about people needing to actually do stuff that goes beyond the next three or four years uh, and, and do stuff that will benefit people you know, beyond their generation and, and possibly after uh, they pass away. And I, I think that is incredibly important. But I think your point about deliberative democracy is a really, really good one, actually. Um, but that requires politicians to some extent not to promise to take back control, but it, it requires them to actually surrender a degree of control because there's no point in deliberative democracy unless politicians, you know, commit to honouring uh, the results of that deliberative Process, but I think, as you say, deliberative democracy is one of the ways forward. Simply because it moves us away from this very kind of naive consumerist attitude to democracy that I think many people have fallen into, um, which you know is, in some sense, a, a transference from what they experience in the market, which is you know if they at least have the resources, they can get what they want when they want, how they want. And that's just not the way that democracy works. And I think one of the good things about deliberative democracy is that actually it forces people to realise that there are trade-offs and, and you know, there, there is a kind of iterative process. It is the, the, the slow boring of hard boards that, uh, that they were talked about. So I, I think talking about the tools is, is very important. And clearly, as you both said, you know, leadership is, is important. And I think Nezrin's right. I mean, the, the Josiah... As she's sometimes called in in New Zealand, you know, to some extent uh, has it easy because she is in a small, face-to-face, informal, less hierarchical society. But one of the reasons, as well, I think that that, that Jacinda Ardern has done very well, and New Zealand has coped very well, is, and this comes back, and I'll finish here to a point you were making about the the importance of crisis. New Zealand hasn't just done well in COVID nineteen. Um, because Jacinda's there, it's done well because this is the society that's also had to cope a few years ago with the Christchurch earthquake. It's the society that had to cope with the Christchurch mosque mass shootings, okay? It's a society that has got used to actually pulling together in the the last few years, Uh, and it's a society anyway in which um, collectivism and individualism has always actually blended quite well. And I'll finish on your point, actually, which is about devolution. Because I do think we have a massive problem in this country, and it's England. Uh, you know, it, we, we have a huge, huge country, you know, of 50-odd million people, uh, I think it is, in England. And basically, it is too big to manage some of the problems that you're talking about. And unless we move towards breaking things down a little bit more, we can't, as it were, recreate um, what in some ways New Zealand has, I think, um, which is, you know, a, a, a society which blends individualism and collectivism more easily because those are local solutions and people can see um, leaders who know them, who understand them, who are the kind of leaders that you like uh, and that who can, in some senses, manage the process without people feeling that they're being managed from the top down. Tim, thanks for that. Um, sadly, it's all we've got time for. It's been, I mean, it's been a brilliant conversation. Um, uh, Tim and Nezreen, thank you so much for for joining me. Do check out the RSA website for more information on their brilliant work. And if you don't already follow them on Twitter, go remedy that immediately. Uh, On the RSA site, you'll also find links to read or listen to the Reflexive Age in full, as well as all the latest insights from our action research team, plus information about how you can get involved in the RSA's work by joining our global community, over 30,000 Changemaker Fellows. 
I do hope you found today's conversation as enjoyable and thought-provoking as I have. If you have got any comments or questions, you can post them on Twitter using the hashtag RSA Bridges. Finally, thanks again to my guests, Nezri Malik and Tim Bale, and thank you all for watching. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.